Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Hump Days, I mean Wednesday's edition of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I am your host, James Murphy, and welcome to today's episode. It is gorgeous outside. It is beautiful. The draft is just a mere one day away, and I am super duper excited for that. We have so much to discuss in regards to the draft, but we do have a couple other topics that I want to address. But first, I do need to remind you of two things. One, just to remind you again about the scheduling for Murph's Boston Sports Talk this coming week. Obviously today being Wednesday, April 28th, is episode 47, which is airing and being released per usual on its intended release day of Wednesday. However, there is no Friday episode 48 for this week. No episode this week because of the draft on Thursday. And that being said, I must remind you yet again of the draft special that I'm live streaming on YouTube. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be incredible to be live, to go over the draft in person with you supporting me, with you you know, chatting with me, talking to me, discussing, debating, and all that good stuff while we're live on YouTube. So Thursday's draft special is going to kind of replace episode 48 that would be being released on Friday. However, the live stream from the draft on Thursday, I will upload to all those audio platforms, not as an episode, but just as a form of content for you to listen to if you're not able to catch the live stream. So with that being said, I do want to keep you updated and aware of the small changes to the schedule this coming week as we approach the draft and obviously as Friday comes around. But moving to Boston sports. I do want to talk about the Bruins because the Bruins played a very impressive game last night and I can't overshadow how massive of a game that was for them. First, the score. They won 3-1 to against the Pittsburgh Penguins in Pittsburgh, closing out their little two-game series down in Pennsylvania. Winning 3-1 to after losing 1-0 a couple days ago, a great bounce-back win. But more important, they were on a two-game losing streak. However, that did not stop them. They were still able to come around and win yesterday, who at the time, the Penguins were in first place of the East Division, who have now dropped back to the second. But still, nonetheless, A, a team better than you, and B, you're in a foreign arena. You're in someone else's building. So just kind of going in there, being able to salvage a win, splitting the series, walking away with two points, so the game not going into overtime where the Penguins get a pity point, you're able to close that gap just a little bit more. And like I did mention you're coming off a two-game losing streak, so you weren't collapsing under pressure. You weren't letting the two-in-a-row losses get ahead of you. 
and ultimately, <clears throat> excuse me, affecting you in this game. Couple points I want to pull away from this game. We saw goals from Brad Marchand, David Krejci, and Taylor Hall. I'm really loving the Bruins' offensive units. Um, basically, one through three at this point. Fourth unit, the fourth line is coming around slowly, as is the third. The third has gotten a little bit better here and there with Jake DeBrusque now on that line. I really think that line suits him very well. Obviously, him being a former first overall pick, you'd rather see him on the second, but he just wasn't performing up there. So him kind of sliding down into the three line makes uh, makes him makes him more comfortable and he's allowed to do more things down there. But Marshan, Krejci, and Hall getting goals. And like I said, I like what I'm seeing from lines one through three. Tuka Rask stops 25 pucks on 26 shots. He did lose his shootout, which he had basically the majority of the game, but he did lose it with around two and a half minutes or so left in the game. A little disappointing, but it was an absolute snipe shot. There's nothing you can do about it. Just went right by you. Was, like I said, nothing you can do about a great shot. As I did mention, it was good to see them bounce back in a tough arena against a tough team after losing two straight. Oftentimes, you'll see a team can lose a couple and collapse and not bounce back. So, for example, team goes on two, three, four game losing streak. And when you need a bounce back win, the good teams will get one. Bad teams don't. <laughs> the bad teams won't. And a perfect example about that is the Celtics. I mean, all season, the Celtics have shown their inability to win in needed bounce back games including their loss last night to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I'm not going to be talking about the Celtics today. Just They lost to the Oklahoma City Thunder. That's all I'm going to say. Nonetheless, though, it was really good to see the Bruins actually show and flex their muscles that, hey, we're a top-tier team in this hockey league. Not only our division, but in this hockey league. And yes, we did lose two in a row, but we're going to bounce back. We're going to defeat this team that is in the standings better than us. We may not think that they're better than us, and we're going to show that, hey, we can play either home or away. And that's exactly what they did. And it's awesome to see them do that. Moving ahead, or looking ahead, I should say, the Bruins do play the Buffalo Sabres in Boston for a two-game series tomorrow, Thursday at 7, and then Saturday at 1 in the afternoon. Bruins got to win both of those games. I mean, I'll go a little bit more um, into the schedule just a bit, but these two games are crucial Got to get some momentum as there's only eight games left in the season. 16 points up for grabs. Get as many as you can. Winning these two games here for the uh, closing out the week will be absolutely crucial because the standings are getting closer and tighter, which I will talk about in just a few moments. But yes, two games against the uh, Sabres, both of them in Boston. And then next week, Monday the 3rd and Tuesday the 4th, you're playing a back-to-back against the New Jersey Devils in New Jersey. Another bad team that you should be able to easily beat. Hopefully you can do such a thing. Yes, it's a back-to-back. It's going to be tough. Goalies are going to be tested. Defense is going to be tested. But it is against a bad team, so you should have no problem doing that. If you can walk away from those four games with eight points, you're going to be looking damn good, let me tell you. You'll be looking good because these are teams that you have to beat, especially when it's your last time playing them and the season's about to end. Because you got the Rangers on Thursday and Saturday next week. And then two weeks from now, you got the Islanders on Monday, May 10th at home. And then your final game in the regular season is Tuesday, May 11th against the Capitals that I keep talking about and keep referring to. 
So you got four games against bad teams. You got two games against a fighting Rangers team. And then you got two games against two teams that are ahead of you in the standings, which I will talk about right now. As it currently stands, as I'm recording this on one at 124 in the afternoon on Wednesday, April 28th, the Boston Bruins have 62 total points with a 28-14-6 record. They are one point behind the third place New York Islanders who have 63 points. The Bruins are five points behind the Penguins who have 67 points. And obviously the Bruins are six points behind the Capitals with 68 points. The Bruins have closed the gap. That first place, that first seed is starting to look a little glim. But it's still something that they can do. They're probably not going to be able to get it if they can't win against the teams that they should be able to beat. Like I mentioned, they got two against the Sabres to close this week out, two against the Devils to start next week. That's eight points right there. That's eight points right there. Now, obviously, the Capitals, you know, they'll probably win their their set of games against whoever they're playing. But come on, if you want any shot, this is going to be a last chance to do so because, like I said, you're going to be playing two games against the Rangers to close out next week, and the Rangers are only four points behind you at 58 points. There are only two regulation wins. If they can beat you, say the series comes around next week and you know the point differential is the same, four points, and they beat you two games in regulation, well, now you got a problem. You're going to be in fifth place because the goal's four, they have 28 more goals for than you. You only have 139. They have 167. And this is something that I addressed a couple weeks ago come the trade deadline is that the Bruins need to get scoring help because their goals for is awful. Their differential the differential is good, but their differential compared to other teams is god-awful. You're lucky that the Islanders are also having this similar problem because they only have 136. So, ooh. It's going to be really close if, you know, any tiebreakers come down to it. But as it stands right now, you're four points above the Rangers. And those two games against them on May 6th and May 8th, the end of next week, is going to be a lot bigger and closer and more important than you may originally thought. Because a couple weeks ago, we thought that the Rangers were going to, you know, check out and be out of it. Uh, The Flyers were kind of that 15 that was flirting with you a little bit. The Flyers have completely tanked. The Rangers are really making a strong push for that last spot in the um, division. But hey, if you do your due diligence and you put in the work, win the games that you should, you shouldn't even have to worry about the Rangers because hopefully you can push those Islanders down to that four spot. And then depending on how things go, we can talk about the second seed. But it's all going to ma- It's not going to matter if you can't go 4-0 in these next four games against these trash bag teams in your division. I mentioned this a couple uh, last week, I believe, is you were t- you played two less games against the entire division at one point, and basically throughout the majority of the season, games got canceled because of COVID and whatnot, and those two games were being made up with one against the Sabres and one against the Devils. Earlier in the season, if those games weren't canceled, it might be tougher competition because those teams may have thought they had a long shot to be competitive, obviously as the season portrayed and played out. That competitive mindset for both of those teams has significantly faded. And they don't really care about the season anymore. They just kind of want to get the season done with. And I don't blame them. And that's why you need to take advantage of them. You need to go 4-0 against these uh, two teams in these four games. 
if you want to have any hope, any hope to be competitive for a top two seed in your division. Because like I said, you're going to have two games against the Rangers the end of next week, and then the start of the week after, the Islanders at home and the Capitals in Washington. Going to be a tough two games to close out the season, but that's just how it is. That's just how it is. I have strong faith that the Bruins can go 4-0. I really think they could. Two games against the Rangers, maybe split. And then those two games against the Islanders and Capitals, who knows? Who knows? All in all, let's just look at the next six games. Two against the Sabres, two against the Devils, two against the Rangers. Those six games, if they can go 5-1, and one, I'll take it and I'll feel confident. I'll feel good if they can go 5-1. and one. Those two games against the Islanders and the Capitals, one in each, I don't know. We're just going to have to see what the standings look like come then because, you know, they may need two points, they may need three points, they may need four points. We don't know. Heck, if we're lucky enough, we might only need one point. But we're just going to have to wait and see. We're going to have to wait and see how the season and the rest of the standings kind of fall into place. So just to, one last time, just to remind you, Capitals top of your division, 68 points. Penguins in second with 67 Islanders 63 at third, your Boston Bruins 62 in fourth place, that last spot in the division, and then the Rangers flirting with you in the five spot with 58 total points. That's going to be it for your little Bruins segment. I love talking about the Bruins to start off the show. It just really puts me in a good mood. They've been playing so well. They're 7-3 and three in their last 10, obviously on a one-game winning streak, just losing two in a row recently. I'm looking forward to the end of the regular season for the Bruins. It's going to be a great push to the playoffs. I'm so excited, and I know you are too. And speaking of excitement, I want to kind of really pivot and transition to something that I talked a decent amount before um, the 2021 season started for baseball. And I kind of want to revisit this topic because I got a lot of heat for it early on. And I kind of want to revisit this take and just to kind of see if I was right or wrong. So what I'm referring to is at the beginning of the baseball season, I did a top 25 list for players entering the 2021 season. You know, I had a bunch of your uh, favorite players on there. Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna, Mike Trout, uh, Cody Bellinger, Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts. But one player I left... in. Going back to that, you know, some of them have really proven that they're a top 25 player. And, you know, some players on that list have been question marks, no doubt. I mean, no list is perfect. But one player I left off that list was New York Yankees uh, infielder, DJ LeMahieu. Okay. I left him off my top 25 players list before the start of the 21 season. And here's why. I have a few reasons why. No order. No order. Just some reasons. 2020 uh, stats, so last year's stats, the COVID shortened season, those stats are inflated due to the shortened season. Now, I'm not going to disregard them and say that they don't count. I'm just saying the dude had a 364 batting average in uh, 195 at-bats where he only got 71 hits. Now, that's fantastic for a two-month stretch or a 60-game stretch, absolutely. But over the course of the season, is that ultimately going to hold up I don't know I don't think so I mean we've seen hitters before hit 240 250 260 heck even 270 but 
I don't know, in today's day and age, batting average isn't really one of those things that holds a lot of value. It does, but it's not what players strive for. DJ LeMahieu, on the other hand, is one of those players that does hit a, um, a relatively high average. I mean, in his career, he his career average is 304. Very good. In 2016, he led the league with a 348 average. All right? So he can hit. I'm not saying he can't. But 364 in... He, he played 50 games, but in a 60-game regular season, it just seems very inflated. Yes, he was in the MVP discussion, but I mean, 10 home runs, 27 RBIs, 364 average, 421 on-base percentage. They're good for the circumstances, don't get me wrong. But like I said, I just think that's kind of a little inflated. Another reason is he was projected to regress this year. So in terms of regression, there was a lot of statistics for DJ LeMahieu that projected his 21 season where he was going to regress a lot. Average was going to be around uh, just a little below 300. Home runs weren't going to were going to be like the upper teens, I believe. RBIs, I think like 70s or 80s. So I took that in comparison to his last full regular season, which was his first regular first season with the Yankees back in 2019, where he had 26 home runs, 102 RBIs, and a 3.27 average. If I took that sample size, and that was in 145 games, by the way, if I took that sample size and used that to outlook 2021, then okay, he could he'd probably fit in there. But we do have 2020 stats to go off of, albeit shortened regular season statistics. Everything has to go into the equation, right? And then lastly, he's on the wrong side of 30. Baseball doesn't really affect a lot of people over 30. I mean, pitchers can pitch over 30 into their mid-30s, heck, even into the late 30s. Hitters can always hit. Fielding is probably the one thing that really kind of takes a player back. Obviously, it's not like football where if you're a quarterback, you can play up into your late 30s, hell, even into your 40s. Basketball doesn't really happen. Hockey, you see players in their mid-40s all the time. But baseball, positionally, it's it's tricky. It's very tricky because one injury, you're done. Look at Dustin Bedroya. One injury, done. I mean, back in 2004, Nomar Garcia-Parra, he injured his hamstring, I believe it was, and he was never the same player after we traded him. It just happens. It just happens to players that are around this age. Next thing you know, next year, uh, DJ LeMahieu could completely suck, and we'll never hear from the guy again. That's just how baseball works. And then my last point of why I left him off my list is the Yankees lineup entering, keep in mind, entering 2021 is loaded. Stanton, Judge, Torres, LeMahieu himself, um, Gary Sanchez, Aaron Hicks, good guys in their lineup. So RBIs are always available out there for him to drive in. Plus, plus, he's playing in a small stadium. Yankee Stadium is known to be a hitter's park due to the short right field porch. Yes, he is a righty, but left field isn't all that much deeper. So smaller park, more home runs. Those are all the reasons why I think that DJ LeMahieu wasn't going to be a top 25 player in 2021. So just to recap, 2020 stats are inflated due to COVID season. He was projected to regress in 21, wrong side of 30, and that Yankees lineup entering 21 was loaded. So RBIs are always available, plus he plays in a small stadium, being Yankee Stadium. After a month, 
We are just about a full month into the 21 regular season. So let's take a look at his current statistics to see if I was right or wrong about leaving DJ LeMahieu off my top 25 list that I released before the start of the 2021 season. Alrighty, let's see. So age 32, he has played in 21 games so far with 95 plate appearances and 84 at-bats. So he has walked 11 times. He has scored 11 runs with 22 hits, 5 doubles, no triples, 1 home run, and 6 RBIs. No stolen bases and no caught stealing attempts. 16 strikeouts, like I mentioned, the 11 walks, and all of that calculated up is a 262 batting average, where his on base percentage is 347, his slugging is 357, and his on base plus slugging, if you didn't do the math, is 705. Do you need anything else? Let me just recap. One home run, six RBIs, a 262 batting average, and 84 at-bats for 21 games played. Now, let's just see how many total games the Yankees have played. Because if I remember correctly, not they haven't had any games canceled or postponed due to COVID or maybe weather. They've played 23 games, 23 ball games, and DJ LeMahieu has played in 21 of them. And in those 21 games, he has one home run, six RBIs, and a 262 batting average. Now, to be fair, I just calculated all of baseball's average batting average, right? That's a little mouthful right there. So 30 teams, I took 30 batting averages from the combined... A okay, so let me break this down slowly. So picture every possible batting average that's out there for a team from eligible hitters. Combine that up. Whatever that average is, that's team one. Do that for all 30 teams. Then I took whatever that number was, added it all up, and then divided it by 30, and I got a league batting average of .232. So the average batting average in all of baseball right now is 0 .32, 0 .232, excuse me. So DJ LeMahieu is better than the average hitter in the major leagues. I will give him that. But where will we find the Yankees average in baseball as it stands right now? If we scroll all the way down to 28th, we will find the Yankees with an average of 0 .210, so 0 .210 average batting average for their whole team. So DJ LeMayhew is performing better than his average teammates. We'll have to give him credit there. But, like I mentioned, if we look at it, the grand scheme of things, into what I was given heat for at the beginning of the season... As it stands right now, is DJ LeMahieu a top 25 player in baseball? I'm going to say no. Now, granted, we're only one month into the season and a lot of things can change. You know, you go on a little hitting streak. Uh, you go on a little cold streak where you go one for 20 or whatever. Things could drastically change for the good or for the worse. Yankees haven't started off all that good. 
they have won a few games here as of late. They did go on a nice little losing streak earlier on. So things could change, like I said, for the better or for the worse. Not only for the Yankees, but for DJ LeMahieu. But as it stands right now, as we're about to exit one full month of regular season play, DJ LeMahieu is not a top 25 player in baseball. If we want to look back at his quote-unquote MVP caliber season in 2020, while he played 50 games in that year where he's played 21 thus far in 2021, so roughly halfway through, and he's not even close to the statistics that he put up last year. Not even close. So, going back to the reasons why I left him off my list. 2020 stats are inflated to the shortened season. Potentially, I mean, that's obviously very hard to judge, but just given the generic and the generalization of a long season, high averages tend to not hold. That's just a fact. He was projected to regress this year, and so far he has regressed. He is 32 years old, and he's on the wrong side of 30. Obviously, you want to be in your 20s and not in your 30s. Generally speaking, that's what teams look for, but obviously players are really good into their lower 30s, even in their mid-30s, but you have to be really, really good. Like Nelson Cruz, he's like 38, 39 years old, and he's still cranking 40 home runs, uh, generally speaking, and still hitting well over 300. I don't know how good he's doing this year because I haven't looked it up, but he's just one example. Yankees lineup is loaded. Well, to start the year it was, but as we look at it after a month, not so much because they're Combined average is only 210. <laughs> it's only 210. So regardless of what kind of stadium they're playing in, whether it's a pitcher's park or a hitter's park, 210 ain't going to cut it and ain't going to break make it, right? 262 for DJ LeMahieu is actually probably like 380 if you're going to compare it uh, compare it to the rest of the Yankees. 262 is the new 380 down in New York, <laughs> all things considered. So... After the end of one month, no, DJ LeMahieu is not a top 25 baseball player. Therefore, my prediction at the beginning of the season was correct, and all the haters can go pound sand and cry me a river apologizing that I'm smarter than them at baseball. <laughs> but this could change. I'm not going to do this monthly thing. Don't get me wrong. I'll probably relook at it at the end of the season. But this could change come two months, three months into the season. The season's still young. Only He's only played 21 games. The team in total has only played 23. There's 162 games total to play. We're just going to have to wait and see with that. But like I said, I'm going to say it again. As of now, I was correct. He is not a top 25 baseball player. Moving on to top five. Well, I go from top 25 to top five. See that transition I did there? You see that? I don't know. It, it, it might have sucked. If it sucked, I'm sorry. Let me know. Reach out to me on social media at Murph's Boston ST. At Murph's underscore Boston ST. I caught myself there. Or comment down in the comment section if you're watching on YouTube. If it was good, let me know. Anyways. All right. So moving from top 25 to top five, I want to talk about the top five most intriguing headlines going into the 2021 NFL draft. So I come up with five headlines that I think are the most intriguing no order, so there's going to be no order. It's not like number one is better than number four. It's just five headlines that I find the most intriguing going into 2021 NFL Draft, which starts tomorrow at 8 p.m. 
and you're going to want to be there for my live stream on YouTube as I break it down as it happens. Anyways, number one, do the Bengals pick Jamar Chase, wide receiver out of LSU, or Panay Sewell, left tackle, or more than likely left tackle out of Oregon? Do the Bengals give Joe Burrow his wide receiver from LSU where they both shined immensely and beautifully? Or do they give Joe Burrow protection so he doesn't get another injury, period, no matter what it is? Because last year he tore his ACL after a pretty solid rookie campaign, tore his ACL, didn't see him for the rest of the season. Obviously, he's coming back healthier, hopefully better. Now, you can have this mindset a couple different ways. One, it's an offensive league. You give the guy his weapon. You get a tackle in the second round because tackles are deep. Then again, you can look at the other side. Give Burrow the best guy available to protect him, and you go address your offensive needs later in the draft where wide receiver is also a deep draft class this year, probably the deepest class out of all the positions, and go get him more support down the line. Me personally, I have the Bengals taking Jamar Chase on my mock draft that I released last episode on Monday. I think that's just going to be where they're going to go. They're going to want to make this guy so happy in Cincinnati. They're going to try to reunite him. They already have chemistry. They already have a spark together. They both shined at LSU. So bringing them both here in the NFL to play together, you would think that they would both shine on the next level. Could be very true. Also, it's very hard to determine if college play will transfer over to NFL play, especially for Jamar Chase, who opted out of last season due to COVID, and also for Joe Burrow, only playing a half a year due to his torn ACL injury. Going to be extremely intriguing and going to be super interesting to see what the Bengals do there. But uh, it's ultimately, it could really go either way, and I think it's only going to be one of these two guys. If Kyle Pitts is there, say the Falcons pass up on Kyle Pitts, throw him into the mix, but I'm a strong believer that the Falcons will pick him up. But that is neither here nor there. Number two, the 49ers. Who did they pick at quarterback? Right now, it seems like it's going to be between Mac Jones and Trey Lance. Early on, it seemed like it was really heavily about Mac Jones. A lot of mock drafts lately. A lot of people are saying that Trey Lance has really taken the 49ers by storm. And it's given, you know, them problems. You know, it's given the team problems on who they're going to take at that spot at number three. Keep in mind, the 49ers did trade up to number three. They were at 12, and they sent Miami a boatload of picks in order to move up to number three. So they better get this pick right. And I'll talk about this later on in the episode. But whether they pick Mac Jones or Trey Lance, they better pick the right guy. And regardless of which guy they pick, what about Jimmy Garoppolo, Jimmy G? A lot of rumors tie Jimmy G and the 49ers, you know, making a trade with New England. What is that trade going to look like? I'm also hearing that the trade market for Jimmy G isn't all that good. So the 49ers just going to have to, like, you know what, screw it. Third round, fourth round pick, just get the money off our books, have the guy, we'll have our guy that we just drafted. It's going to be really interesting because you really thought Jimmy Grapple was going to be the guy in San Francisco, but it seems like Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch are just done with him. Number three, do the Broncos address their defensive needs, specifically at cornerback, or do they draft a quarterback to compete with Drew Locke? 
a lot of mock drafts have the Broncos either taking a quarterback, whether it's the fourth or the fifth guy remaining out of the top five, or taking the first cornerback off the board, whether it's Patrick Sertain, J.C. Horn. Which direction do they go? They could try to bolster their defense and go with a cornerback to obviously help shut down you know, the passing attacks in the AFC. Mahomes, Hebert, uh, Ben Roethlisberger is coming back. Cleveland Browns you know, have a good team over there. The Titans call for what they are, but they can sling it a little bit. Or do they bring in a quarterback to compete with Drew Locke? Now, Drew Locke has been up and down in terms of play, performance, skills. But he's also been injured as well. Now, oftentimes we'll see teams draft a quarterback in the second, third, fourth round to bring in competition for their current starter. But if you're going to draft a quarterback to give your current starter competition, I feel like that would be a later pick, not a first-round, ninth-overall pick. I feel like that whichever quarterback they choose, if they choose one, so whichever quarterback falls to them, and and if they do choose one, it's probably for long terms. Like They may have Drew Locke be the quarterback, the guy this year, and then move on from him next year to the guy that they draft this year if they do. That's an option. But if they're happy and satisfied with Drew Locke, they can go cornerback. I just think when you're in a division with Patrick Mahomes, Justin Hebert, and Derek Carr, Drew Locke is the fourth guy in that group of four. And Drew Locke's not going to be enough. He's not going to be enough to compete in that difficult AFC West because you have to anticipate the Chargers are going to get better. Obviously, they're probably going to draft an offensive lineman, specifically tackle, to protect Hebert. You would have to anticipate the Raiders are going to try to do some things to be competitive. You know, they may not make the playoffs, but, you know, they're always a good competitive team, very unpredictable team. But then there's you, the Broncos, who were once really good when you had Peyton Manning. But now, ever since he retired, you've been looking for the next guy. It's going to be interesting to see what they do there. Cause I don't see them trading up or down. And 9 is going to be where they pick. So what the Broncos do is going to be quite intriguing. Number 4, will we see a running back drafted in the first round? A running back has been drafted in the first round every year since 2015 where we saw Todd Gurley, Melvin Gordon, Ezekiel Elliott, Leonard Fournette, Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, Rashard Penny, Josh Jacobs, and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, which is a total of nine running backs drafted in the first round since 2015. Majority of them have panned out. You can say what you want about Rashard Penny. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had a good, excuse me, a good start to last year. Kind of faded a little bit when you know Leonard Fournette started off really hot, then kind of sizzled in Jacksonville, rejuvenated himself down in Tampa. Ezekiel Elliott's been feasting. Todd Gurley's been really good. Melvin Gordon's proven himself. Christian McCaffrey is probably the best running back in the league. Saquon Barkley is going to say something about that. And Josh Jacobs has been extremely solid. So generally speaking, first-round running backs do really good. And all nine of them have either been drafted early in the draft, the middle of the draft, or in the late draft. So it's not like the running backs have just been early picks. So if you don't get a you know top 10 running back or top 
pick a running back for your top 10, anyone else is going to be bad. You know, they've all been across the first round, so either you get one early in the middle or the late round of the first round. Doesn't matter. Generally speaking, a first-round running back does perform very well. But on the other side of the token, running backs generally have poor value in the first round. All right? Although we've recently seen top-tier running backs drafted in the first round, evaluators, scouts, and analysts have poorly valued them in the first round. Mel Kuyper Jr. of ESPN thinks no running back is worth a first-round pick. I mean, I don't know. You look at a couple of these guys, and you look back to when and where they were drafted, and you say they're a top-five talent. they got to go in the top five. But nonetheless, there are two running backs that we could see potentially sneak into the first round, and that's Alabama's Najee Harris and Clemson, uh, Travis Etienne. Me personally, I could see it both ways. I could see both of them going in the first round. I could see none of them going in the first round. It all kind of depends on what teams want to do and how they value these guys. If they don't go in the first round, you damn better expect them to go early in the second round because that's a great spot for running backs to be selected early second round is because they have that first round talent, but you your team has other needs that need to be addressed with that first round pick. So come the second round, like boom, we have to take them because that talent is there. They have the talent to be first-round picks, but running backs generally throughout the NFL is a deep position where you can find serviceable running backs just about anywhere. Anywhere. So why waste a high draft pick on one? So Najee Harris could potentially go to Pittsburgh. A lot of people are talking about the Steelers taking him at 24. Do they go address you know, defensive needs, whether it's cornerback or an edge rusher, to go alongside with TJ Watt? Or do they maybe address the wide receiver position or maybe the offensive line position where they could use help there too? Very intriguing. Running back would seem like it's more of a want than a need there in Pittsburgh. And then the other team that I could see taking a running back in the first round is the Buffalo Bills. They just drafted Zach Moss last year. They drafted Devin Singletary the year before. I don't think they're sold on either of them being a workhorse, a three-down workhorse. So you could see, maybe if Najee Harris doesn't go to Pittsburgh, them take Najee Harris. Or maybe if Harris does go in the first round to whoever, them draft Travis Etienne. It could really go either way. Buffalo's a really solid team, but you could also see them address other needs for their team. And then if neither of them go in the first round, I certainly would expect the Jacksonville Jaguars, the first pick in the second round, to take Travis Etienne, regardless if Najee Harris is on the board, because that connection between Trevor Lawrence and ETN, that Clemson connection is going to be very strong and it's going to be very valuable for Urban Meyer down in Jacksonville to take advantage of. Then, who knows where running back could fall. You could see two running backs go in the first two picks on day two. It's Running backs are one of those crazy, unpredictable draft positions that we have. And it's going to be really intriguing to see if one, two, or none go. I can assure you, that three running backs will not go tomorrow night. Number five, will the Patriots move up in the draft to draft a quarterback of the future? Right now, the Patriots hold the 15th pick in the NFL draft tomorrow night. A lot of rumors are swirling that the Patriots are going to move up to number four with the Falcons, number seven with the Lions, number eight with the Panthers, number 10 with the Cowboys. It's You have no idea what they're going to do. 
the beginning of this offseason, we never thought Bill Belichick would spend $150 million in guaranteed money. Then he does. Bill Belichick's never traded up in the draft to go draft somebody, but we could see that absolutely happening. If three quarterbacks go in the first three picks, which it's more likely going to be, say, just argument's sake, Trey Lance and Justin Fields fall to seven. Could you see Belichick move up with the Detroit Lions, who are desperately needing draft capital to help rebuild? That is definitely on the table. Cowboys are a really solid team as it stands. You could see the swap there where the Cowboys you know, move back a little bit. Still able to possibly get a cornerback, get other draft capital to really build that team because they're going to want to be in contention for the NFC East. It, then you could see Bill Belichick not do anything at all and draft a defensive player. You know, with that 15th overall pick, it's just going to be a complete question mark. All five of these topics that I just mentioned are all so intriguing in their own right. Like I said, that list was in no order of what I think is the most intriguing compared to the least intriguing. It's just these are headlines that going into tomorrow's draft are going to be something worth uh, talking about once they unfold. But moving from top five intriguing headlines, I do want to talk about top five teams that need to win the first round. Again, this list is in no order, but these are five teams that I feel need to come out of the first round. So after Thursday's over with a win in their back pocket. So whether it's making a move to move up and drafting their guy, moving back, you know, getting more assets, but still drafting their guy. Or just having someone fall to them, and surprisingly, and then they go take the guy that they ultimately wanted. These are the five teams that I feel need to get a win. Number one, the San Francisco 49ers. I talked about them in my intriguing headlines. How they moved up. Which quarterback do they take? Well, they traded up giving Miami this year's first and two future firsts along with other stuff in an absolute haul to move up to number three in Thursday's draft. They need to make the right selection. Whether it's Trey Lance, Mac Jones, or if you want to throw Justin Fields back in there, whoever it is, it has to be the right guy. When we look back on this draft in three, four, five years, the guy they pick has to be the best one out of that group. Because when we look at this draft class from five years ago, we should see, and we're probably expecting, Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson to both be better than whoever they pick at three. But whoever they pick at three, the 49ers, need to make the correct selection out of the group of three quarterbacks that's available. And if they don't take a quarterback for whatever reason, it's a loss. It's just a loss. Number two, Cincinnati Bengals. I also talked about them in an intriguing headline. Do they choose to either protect their franchise quarterback or give him a weapon? Do they protect him with Panay Sewell or do they give him a weapon in Jamar Chase? I feel like it's only one out of those two guys that they're going to pick. Like I said, Kyle Pitts could fall to them at number five. I highly doubt it. I think the Falcons will take him. Could the Falcons move back you know, and trade with the Patriots or another team? Potentially, but I don't know if the Falcons want to lose out on a Kyle Pitts super athlete, super talented, generational tight end. Could it happen maybe where that team moves up drafts a quarterback at four, and now Kyle Pitts falls to the Bengals. At that point, I think they should take the Bengals because, you know, (laughs) I mean, Kyle Pitts number five at the Bengals, that'd be an awesome weapon. 
for Burrow to have, along with uh, T. Higgins. And then if you want to consider John Ross a weapon, sure. Um, they also have Tyler Boyd and Auden Tate still. Call it for what it is, but just other wide receivers on the roster. They may think you know bringing in Kyle Pitts over Jamar Chase is where they should go. It's just gonna we're just gonna have to wait and see. I mean, but regardless who they pick, the Bengals, whether it's Jamar Chase or Panay Sewell, they need to make the right selection. You can't pick Chase and he'd be a bust, and you can't pick Sewell and he stinks. You have to pick the right guy. Number three, New England Patriots making the right decision and get in either giving your franchise a future quarterback or building the team for this year with a defensive player. I think if you go defense with 15, you're going for this year. If you go trade up for a quarterback or say, you know, Fields or whoever falls to you at 15, which I highly doubt it. And I want to bring an article up really quickly, but give me a second. Whether you trade up for a quarterback or you stay pat at 15 and go defense, you have to make that right decision. Either play for this year, which a defensive player, if you draft one at 15, would do, or you got to plan for next, uh, future years in which trading up and drafting a quarterback would do. Now, the article that I kind of uh, alluded to is one from Mel Kuyper Jr. I, I love referring to him. I love his stuff. And he is a draft expert over at ESPN. And I kind of want to just touch upon something that he mentioned in a uh, segment on ESPN, and I think it's super interesting to discuss. So Mel Kuyper Jr. quotes, what they need to do in regards to the Patriots, what they need to do is go up and get Justin Fields. If he's there at seven, the Detroit Lions could be a team looking to move down. If I'm New England, I'm sitting at 15. No quarterback is falling, falling in your lap. You're not going to be that lucky or that fortunate. You've got to go get them. I'm going to be very surprised if they weren't aggressive on draft day Thursday and go get that quarterback. Now, being aggressive on draft day is something that Belichick's never done. On the other side of things, Belichick's never been aggressive in free agency either. And look what he did just a month ago. Okay, he went out and spent millions and millions of dollars in guaranteed money. So going out and trading up to draft a quarterback is something he's never done, something he's never had to do, but something he absolutely could potentially do. And I think he will. I think he should. We're just going to have to wait and see. Hopefully it's the right decision. But like I mentioned earlier, the Detroit Lions, they have a lot of things that they need to do with their football team, trading back from seven, getting more draft assets, more draft capital, future assets, would be a smart physiological thing for the team to do because not one player, no matter who it is at seven, is going to help change that franchise around next year. Number four, I just talked to. Ooh, number four, I just talked about the Detroit Lions, but they have so many needs on both sides of the ball. They should be planning and playing for 2022 and beyond, trading back from seven to whoever it is, whether it's the Patriots or not, to get more assets would be ideal for the team. I just talked about this a little bit with the Patriots, so I'm not going to harp on it too much. No one player, unless it's Trevor Lawrence, is going to help that franchise drafting at 7. Obviously, he won't make it to 7. I just think trading back, getting more assets, going and getting a guy that won't only help you for this year, but for years to come, along with the other assets you would acquire in that trade for just this year and the years after, is the ideal plan for the Detroit Lions, who lost a lot in free agency recently and who seriously need to take a look at themselves in the mirror because... 1-15, in 
is definitely on the table for them, and I don't know which team they're going to beat. Number five, the New York Giants. This one is a spicy take. I've heard nothing through the grapevine, through the Twitter world, or nothing about the Giants moving up nor down. It looks like they're going to stay pat at number 11. So, do they move to give Jones another receiving threat? Do they take the third wide receiver between Chase, Waddle, and Smith? Maybe. Do they choose to protect Jones and maybe get an offensive lineman, whether it's you know Slater if he's there, or going up to grab someone else that they may like? Maybe. Do they address the cornerback position? Maybe get Patrick Sertain or J.C. Horn, whoever's available, if you know Dallas probably will pick one. So whoever's left out of the two, do they go cornerback? Maybe. All three of those options are all possible and viable for the New York Giants. This is a team that was on the cusp of the playoffs last year. Granted, they were in the abysmal NFC East. But still, they were right there, so close to the playoffs. And once a team's in the playoffs, anything can happen. But they were so close to the playoffs, so they just need a couple more pieces to potentially get in or get themselves back into the playoffs. The New York Giants are a team and management that has taken a lot of heat in recent years for questionable draft selections. They need to win to win back the fans on Thursday night. A couple years ago, they take Daniel Jones and the fans booed him because they didn't want to move on from Eli. They thought Dwayne Haskins was better. And it seems like David Gettleman made the right choice there because, you know, Dwayne Haskins looking like a bust, not, no longer with the football team, backing up Big Ben in Pittsburgh now. Daniel Jones has shown some promise. He has. So that pick is starting to look right. Was it a good pick at six? Probably not. But still, I mean, he made the right choice at quarterback thus far. But still, generally speaking, as a very strong hearted fan base very loyal and passionate fan base and the giants whatever they decide to choose wide receiver offensive line or cornerback they need to make the right pick to win back their fans on thursday night those are my top five teams that need to win the first round like i said no order just five teams that i feel need to win the first round on thursday night tomorrow night for the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. And before I close out this episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk, I do want to remind you yet again that there will be no Friday episode as the draft special on YouTube will kind of take place for that as I will upload a audio version of the live stream to all of the audio platforms that I am on to your preferred listening platform. You can hear the YouTube live stream special if you're not able to tune in tomorrow on draft night and speaking of tomorrow's live stream i do hope to see you there i hope that you can tune in with me whether to watch your favorite team select watch just the patriots select or be with me throughout the whole thing i will be live from 8 p.m all the way to the patriots selection at whether it's 15 where they currently are whether they move up or whether they move down which i hope they don't do but draft starts at 8 p.m when i'll go live the patriots are slated and expected as it stands right now to pick at 15 and that pick 15 should be roughly around 10 30 p.m eastern time my local time here in new england i'm so looking forward to it if you can just pop in say hi and pop out that's fine if you want to stay for the whole thing that's great just watch your own team or just the patriots 
I'm all for it. I'll be there, and I look forward to seeing you there as well. In addition, I didn't say this at the top, but I'll say this now. I am doing a giveaway on the live stream where one person, one lucky person, will win an Amazon gift card. All you have to do, you have to do these two simple things in order to enter for free, is to be subscribed to the channel and to comment something in regards to the 2021 NFL Draft. It could literally be anything. I mentioned and gave the example last episode on Monday. Oh, I hope Trevor Lawrence is the number one pick. As long as you subscribe, there's your entry. You could say that, oh, the Patriots, you know, they need this, this, and that. As long as you're subscribed, there's your entry. It could be something completely bizarre, like, oh, Trevor Lawrence is going to fall to the Patriots at 15. Well, as long as you're subscribed, that counts as a free entry. So, literally, anything in regards to the 2021 draft tomorrow, and as long as you're subscribed, that entry will count towards a free Amazon gift card giveaway. I'm so excited to run this. I'm looking forward to the draft and the draft special, plus being able to interact with you tomorrow night. With all that being said, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow. I can't wait for the draft. I hope to see you there. But until then, as always, I love you guys, and I will see you. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.